Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. And yes, it's our chance to talk about the topics that have uh, cropped up during the week, uh, talk about the projects that are happening behind the scenes, and of course, uh, to take a range of questions from our trusty Patreon supporters. Uh, two people joining me for this one. First of all, John Linneman. Hey Rich, how's it going? Welcome back to the throne of hosting. Uh, after <laughs> I took my turn last week, it's good to have you back. <laughs> it's great to be here and of course uh alex batalia hey rich i'm just imagining you with like you know matrix style plugs in a throne just sitting there commanding us yeah all, so. yeah that's definitely how it is behind the scenes and uh, yeah fascinating stuff well look we've got a lot to get through this week we're going to kick off with a story from bloomberg jason scryer talking about um Ructions at Spend mm -hmm. Studio. Uh, there's discussion that uh, Days Gone 2 was canned and um, uh, <clears throat> also discussions about a remake or a remaster. I think it was a remake of the original The Last of Us. Yeah. And it kind of ties into concerns and uh, issues about the general direction Sony is going in with its first party mm -hmm. studios, I think. Now, the question to which we're mm -hmm. outsiders looking in, commenting on rumors and speculation and, you know, versus what might actually be happening within uh, Sony. I mean, that's something we've got to bear in mind. But, um, you know, basically, X-Ben Studio people have basically given their tacit approval to, to the Bloomberg story. So, John, what do you make of this? Well, this is, this is a rather tricky and a thorny issue. And I think, you know, this is just another sort of... Um, example of some of the concerns we've had recently about all the studio closures and the 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 leaving of staff members some of them longtime veterans from sony computer entertainment uh that's concerning for sure and then this is just yet another one but it's a weird one because days gone is technically part of the triple a blockbuster suite that they've been focusing on and it does seem to have become somewhat of a cult hit. I actually, it's one of the rare open world games that I had a pretty good time with due to that survival aspect on the motorcycle, I guess. Um, but, I mean, it was famously in development for quite a while. Um, so, I mean, if they were pitching Days Gone 2, I could kind of see why they might say, uh, you know, we really don't want to deal with that again. But at the same time... Um, it, was, it feels like it was enough of a success to maybe warrant that, but I don't know. Like, what are they going to do next? That's that's still what's kind of confusing to me. Well, there was discussion that they were actually working on an Uncharted title, um, which has now moved back to Naughty Dog. That was in the, uh, the Bloomberg story, and they're now working on their own game. I think, uh, you know, this concept of uh, the Days Gone taking so long to develop, doesn't that happen with pretty much all the Sony first party titles when the you know when a new IP comes out I mean Horizon was in development for I, th I don't know 6 years yeah and um you know Killzone 2 also in development for a huge period of time I think the general trend is that you know the second title in a franchise generally tends to come out much quicker because a lot of the learning has been done um, but I'm guessing all of that learning will transition into whatever new title they're working on at the moment um, Alex, you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. I think it's actually very interesting that um, we hear that Days Gone 2 uh, was not greenlit 
uh, because they're putting Days Gone 1 onto the PC and it almost seems like they were trying to build uh, franchise interest at that point. It's, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't, I didn't ever buy the idea that uh, Sony was putting titles on PC to uh, entice PC users to come and buy PlayStation 5s or PlayStation 4s because I think they're just like two very separate markets usually or there's already overlap there. Um, so I am a little surprised that they're putting this on PC now uh, and going to be ascent. I think actually this is very going to do really well on PC because you know zombie game survival aspects, uh, you know a bit systemic design in a lot of ways. Um, this seems like a PC you know title that will do really well there, and then just to have all that interest die off. Uh, I guess maybe then it's just like a last hurrah to get just more sales in an easily portable title because it's UE4. Um, uh, which is a bit of a shame, I guess, uh, for the developers who want to work on a Days Gone 2. Um, it also surprised me a little bit because, like you were saying, Rich, uh, the first title may have trouble coming out, but the second title can, you know, sure up uh, any of the problems, uh, you know, come out quicker. They already have, can iterate on design. There's less tech that needs to be developed beforehand. It does surprise me a little bit that they're just kind of kind of throw it away and not allowed to iterate any further, but what what can I say? Yeah, I kind of feel like um, I guess if it turns out they're working on another new IP, though, I'd be completely fine with that. But uh, yeah, that's good. They're, they're they're clearly a talented bunch over there. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, we really don't know what's going on. I guess the mm -hmm. the other aspect is there was some discussion about a remake for the original The Last of Us, which um, that's a weird one somehow. I don't know, like. I don't I personally don't really see any need for that at this point because one that game is so narrative heavy uh that you know you know the story already um and the gameplay is solid enough but I don't know if it warrants that like you know we've seen this stuff before with some games like obviously there's Demon Souls there was uh the last guard no not the last guardian though it kind of could have used it uh, Shadow of the Colossus uh things like that that Blue Point did and that's kind of their specialty but if you look back at the originals, they each had their own more significant technical flaws and limitations, perhaps, that I feel like doesn't really exist with The Last of Us, uh, as it exists on PS4, especially. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm open enough to see it. I just don't want it to take away from some other potentially more interesting projects. And, you know, uh, I, I do enjoy remakes, but... It, it really has to be a very selective type. I think there's two ways of looking at this. And first of all, uh, I think the thing that's basically making this much more of an issue is the fact that The Last of Us Remastered exists. Uh, um, but it is essentially just uh, a 60 frames per second uh, update with higher resolution. That's pretty much all that was added to that game. Now, if that didn't exist and we had you know, just the PlayStation 3 original, I think that would probably be much more of a welcome for it, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Because, you know, then it's a game that's two generations old and, um, you know, it did have performance issues and there were profound technical limitations. And, you know, maybe if it was rebuilt within the latest Naughty Dog engine, 
an updated version of that for PlayStation 5, then suddenly it becomes a completely different proposition. And, you know, you're talking about narrative, you know, is there more to that story that was happening elsewhere? Is there is there more to it than just that particular story? Uh, I think Sony would be sort of wanting to double down on The Last of Us um, because they've got the TV show coming out. It's going to be a big deal. And, um, you know, we, I think for me, though, the question is, you know, what's going on with The Last of Us 2? You know, where is the PlayStation 5 enhancement for that? Why haven't we seen it yet? And uh, are they doing something a bit more profound with that, like perhaps The Last of Us 2 remastered? Uh, I don't they, know, man. Yeah. I just, I would rather just, I want Naughty Dog to do something new at this point. Uh, there's so, there's so much talent over there. Like, just, we've had enough of The Last of Us for now. I mean, I've enjoyed, <laughs> I've enjoyed the games, but come on, guys. Like, uh, traditionally with Naughty Dog, that's one of the things I've always enjoyed is they usually would kind of come up with some new franchises and ideas for each new generation. But I guess on PS4, technically, it was literally just more Uncharted and more the last of us and both of them were well done but i would hate to see them continue with more of the same so to speak uh and i right. understand getting a new ip off the ground is always difficult but come on naughty dog can do that well yeah that's the other thing of course is that uh, the bloomberg report was also talking about a new uncharted project oh. ah <laughs> which <Come on. laughs> you know <laughs> You know, uh, you know I, I, again, I can see why Sony might want to pursue that because they've got the Tom Holland film coming out, which is essentially, you know, Uncharted Year yeah. One. And I can see why they would maybe want to tap into that and uh, maybe even get Holland involved in the actual game. But, um, yeah, I mean, it is all about the new franchises. They do need to, to bring something new to the table. This, and, um, fundamentally, mm -hmm. this is the this is part this is kind of the mistake Microsoft made in the past when they said, you know what, we're just going to do Gears and Halo and Forza and all that, and we're just going to do it over and over and over again. And it kind of uh, killed the interest in those franchises. I mean, Halo was one of the most popular franchises in all of gaming, and I think right now nobody really cares that much. Like it'll it'll have its fans, but it's not what it was. And they don't going down that path. I think is not the best move. Uh, mm. We'll see what happens, but I don't know. I feel like doubling down and dipping back into these franchises over and over again is not necessarily what people would like. Uh, they want to be excited by something. They want to see something they maybe haven't seen before, something new and and really impressive. And we know Naughty Dog can deliver that. So. Mm. I mean, we do have Returnal coming up very, very soon. Uh, people, very nice looking game people from keep Housemark. bringing that up, and that's it. That looks awesome. But this is that's what Housemark's mo has always been. They constantly release new IP or you know new games. Uh, that's that's all they do, and they're usually great. Um, so it doesn't really signal anything one way or the other. It's just Housemark doing Housemark. Though this one seems a little yeah. bit more ambitious, perhaps, than some of their mm. other recent titles. So. I am extremely eager to try check it out. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Any more for any more, Alex? Any final thoughts? I, I mean, I guess based upon the way the Last of Us Two story works, um, there's technically probably more things to say about the original Last of Us One. Like, it, you know, like side branch. They can. It could just not be the same game remade. It could actually have like a new chapter. Um, uh, and also they already have like models of like these younger characters. So I guess it, there could be like ease of production there, but I also just feel like it's a done and told story. There's already a pretty great PS4 version that runs great on PS5. Um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. 
Next on the docket, although we have discussed this already, the um, new update for the PlayStation 5 that adds finally the ability to copy PlayStation 5 games to external storage, tidies up a few uh, issues that the, the dashboard has had. And I think we've covered most of it in the DF Direct that we filmed, and uh, I'm not sure there's too much more to add. But, you know, we just, <laughs> it's quite interesting that, you know, response from our Patreon supporters, you know, Scott G. Welsh, Gustavo Fantini, where is VRR? Uh, you know, that's kind of like the key feature. And it kind of, I don't know, there's there's been a kind of issue here. I think it goes back, you know, definitely back to the PlayStation 3 era where um, display support on PlayStation consoles, basically they make sure that the, the key um, formats are supported, you know, 720p, 1080p, 2160p. But beyond that, it's actually difficult to see much in the way of innovation. And um, that's a bit of a problem because we're moving into the HDMI 2.1 era and um, VRR is, I don't know, Microsoft has just proven that this is a key feature that is genuinely going to make gaming better. I don't well, know, have you got anything mm -hmm. to add to that? Be before Microsoft, uh, the PC has proven this for years. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, you know, yeah. so it's fantastic. We're like, okay, we finally have this on consoles as well. And it really is great. The TVs that support it are finally available. Um, we really need to see it on PS5, I think. And I would say, I I'm sure it's going to happen. Almost certainly. I mean, I don't know. It, it feels like it would be such a miss for them to not include that. And because it's, mentioned in a lot of the documents is something that's tba uh it's still you know it feels likely to me that it will happen at some point uh but i do have to wonder i think we mentioned this elsewhere was there hasn't been a lot of success in the hdmi 2.1 area thus far with a lot of manufacturers there was the whole thing last year with uh av receivers using that uh somewhat faulty chip that had a lot of compatibility issues which is created issues for me as well since i need to upgrade my av receiver but can't because none exist that support it correctly uh, even sony's latest oled tvs uh the 2.1 chip in that does not handle all features of 2.1 correctly uh it seems from what i've read at least um it really looks like samsung and lg are the only ones that are actually delivering this so there's clearly implementation issues and I'm kind of uh, surprised and impressed, I guess. Microsoft took the correct route working with LG and other companies to ensure that their console would have these features straight away. And I guess you could almost say that the Xbox One X was an experiment for them in that regard because that actually has some of these features. Mm. Like VR was there. It didn't work with every game. There were definitely some limitations there, but, you know, they were dabbling in it back then. And yeah. I'm yeah. sure that helped. <laughs> yeah, I think the issue is that um, it's not just a you know a piece of code, a line of code that Sony adds to the firmware, and suddenly VRR is active. I mean, uh, when we were at Microsoft, John, we had some idea of the amount of effort yeah. that it took for Microsoft to actually get these features working. So yeah, you were talking about Xbox One X being an experiment. Uh, it was the One S as well that had the HDMI two point zero. 2.0 chip but um yeah basically their mentality was that um there wouldn't be display support unless there were mainstream devices out there that support those features so that's why they added it to 1s and 1x very forward-looking approach i think and it does seem to have paid off for the series x and series s 
So, yeah, you know, I do think that Sony will catch up. But, you know, again, last time I looked at the SDK roadmap, TBC, who knows when it's going to come. But I, uh, I guess it's to definitely be, on the radar. To be fair, um, while we would love it now, uh, I actually, I'm sure that the proliferation of HDMI 2.1 displays is still relatively small right mm. now. And this is a feature that, you know, as the generation continues, more and more people will be purchasing TVs that support this. And, you know, like, so there's not a lot of PS5s out there now and probably fewer still with the correct TV to offer this feature. So, you know, I'm sure they don't feel like that burning fire to get it in there immediately. And I'm sure, as you said, there's a lot of logistical challenges in terms of actually implementing this if it wasn't something that was being worked on from the beginning. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. get what you're saying there. Um, but again, you know, if we're talking about a proliferation of displays that are out there, uh, the support for 120 hertz on HDMI 2.0, not quite all it could be. Um, again, oh, Microsoft yeah. have got 1440p 120, which works fine on your screen. Understand, yeah. Alex? Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking about from the reviewer's perspective, that I do wish, um, because there are a lot more screens that support 1440p 120, um, like all the Samsung models do um, from like, what, 2018, 2019 and up um, before the 2.1 models. And that's a lot of you know displays out there that can be playing 1440p 120 content, but when I review a PlayStation 5 game, like I recently had with Tony Hawk, it was a real shame to not be able to do everything I wanted to do because the PlayStation 5 was outputting 1080p and it's also like overscanned 1080p on my screen for some reason, which I, I don't know why that happens, but um, which is something that doesn't happen on the Xbox Series X with 1080p or 1440p. Uh, so it is, uh, I don't know, I just really wish for my reviewer's place that there was 1440p output. So before the time I get a 2.1 screen, which is gonna take a little bit, um, that I can still review PlayStation 5 content and show it to the best possible way that it really can. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next topic. And yeah, we're gonna be taking a very quick look here at uh, the Mass Effect remaster. Um, trailers are coming out, quite detailed blog posts from the developers telling us about all of the enhancements. But um, the trailers that have come out, I mean, obviously we're seeing uh, big changes. The question is whether those are the changes that people were kind of expecting. Uh, John, what's your thought on this? Hmm, that's a tricky one. Um, the reaction has not been so kind to this trailer. Uh, you can certainly see a lot of technical improvements, but I guess the big question is about whether they're tampering with the original artistic vision. Um, because you can kind of see that some areas in the game that were perhaps more dark, punchier, contrasty. Uh, they've been lightened up a lot. And some of this is perhaps just due to a change in technology. Other is just a change in, in the, the art direction they're going for here. But mm -hmm. it kind of changes the feel of the world somewhat. You know what I mean? Like when you go from this dark, punishing planet to something that's like uh, brightly lit with sun rays everywhere, it does kind of feel like a different thing like i i'm not necessarily <laughs> yeah. for or against this like i don't mind seeing a different vision of something like that but i can certainly i i kind of wonder what's going on with that and i kind of feel like i want to reserve judgment until the actual game is out but it does look decidedly different 
Mm. Alex? The one, in t- yeah, in terms of lighting direction, <clears throat> that's one of the big things that I noticed being um, more uh, questionable, whether or not you'll like that or not. And well, when the game comes out, we'll probably have our own thing to say about it. But uh, in terms of like other technology that's changes, I noticed that they've changed um, the way the skin is shaded. And this is, yeah. this is a very particular thing where um, it can look better, of course, depending upon the lighting scenario and the cutscene, but it can also have a, just to make the character model look different as a result, like mm-hmm. give them a, like a different tone in their face and all these other things. And they can start looking, I don't know. I, so, I saw, uh, yeah, there's, there's one screenshot I saw that I was less than happy with due to the skin shader change, oddly so enough. So I yeah, think what but. we're running into is this sort of, it's something we often see when older games are brought back. It's like if you slap on super high-res normal maps on a character model from the year 2000, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this like weird mismatch between technologies and art direction where it doesn't feel right. Like the character models in this game, for all their flaws in the original, they they were arted up specifically around the way Unreal Engine 3 was working at the time. Yeah. And I feel like you either have to completely rebuild them in a new way or you kind of try to stick closely with that original look. And when you get this halfway point, it kind of feels like you're like uh, slapping together different elements that don't necessarily work together. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I yeah, I'd agree with that 100%. You know, like everyone makes the joke about HT, HD texture mods on PC with that cat image, which is hilarious, by the way. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, I, uh, I also... I'm I'm a really big fan of Mass Effect One. Me too. I like it a lot more than two and three. It's my, it's my favorite. Um, yeah, it is my, for me too. So um, I do have a bit more reverence for the original product and all of its flaws. Uh, so I just I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to wait and see. But I hope I'm not disappointed in the end. Um, I hope they keep it as is. And if not. Well, there's always the the original PC version to go back to. Unfortunately, they never um, return to it on the original consoles to give it like a 60 FPS treatment or something like that. Uh, But yeah, there's always that original PC version if you like it. Okay, now moving on to the next topic. Uh, Potentially very exciting stuff here. This week, NVIDIA's GTC conference was happening. Now, this is basically aimed at high-end professionals small amount of gaming crossover but it's also where we start to see some of the emerging technologies that nvidia has and some of it does transition over to to gaming and there are some gaming presentations so it's still ongoing as we record this so there's certain Mm -hmm. topics we can't cover but alex you've been keeping track of this right yeah, I spent a lot of time just kind of watching over the presentations uh, the last two days, uh, the ones that are out already. And there's a big number of things to talk about. And the first one I kind of want to start with was the kind of general engine announcements that have occurred. Um, you have Unreal Engine 4, which has been supporting <clears throat> ray tracing uh, both in the main engine branch and also through a separate NVIDIA engine branch for a long time uh, that kind of, uh, you know, they'll integrate like uh, new physics features or um, a different like experimental uh, things like ray trace caustics and things like that. Uh, but the DLSS 2.1, the um, 
the RTX DI, as well as uh, a number of other kind of technologies like their RTX GI technology, has gone out of the kind of like hidden developer branch that you need to apply for on GitHub to be like more readily accessible. So basically in the future, this means that when uh, games are gonna be coming out, it is much easier for developers to kind of integrate features from this NVIDIA branch uh, into their own uh, branch version Useful. to get it into games. So we're gonna see more, I think we're definitely gonna see a lot more indie titles in the upcoming future, like System Shock, uh, that's, well, indie's a word for that, but like smaller titles, I think there's gonna be a lot more they're gonna be integrating I, RTX features like the really good point, Alex. I think this is, yeah. this is gonna open the door for increased ray tracing in games in general and ultimately yeah. making it easier to implement this stuff in the back end is really important to get it out there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, well, this week we had the announcement that uh, Mortal Shell is getting ray tracing and DLSS support, which I assume they're just tapping into those features that were available out of the box yeah. in Unreal Engine 4. But that's yeah. a team of like 15 people and they're producing mm. a ray tracing game. That's a good sign. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the reason why these middlewares are so powerful. Um, increasing the, the visual fidelity of your game just by essentially turning on a console command is a pretty big deal uh, without having to worry about art considerations so much. So that's one of the better aspects of ray tracing. Another um, kind of announcement was Unity's uh, ray tracing and also DLSS 2.1 support is being added into their main branch release. So it's not even separate anymore. Um, this, is, this is big because DLSS in still in Unreal is also a separate kind of plugin you have to add in. But for this, it's just literally, if you have a Unity game, uh, it's just one of the anti-aliasing options essentially now. And I think that's really awesome. Uh, Unity uh, doesn't see a lot of usage in much, much larger titles, but there's still some um, you know, bigger named Unity titles out there like Escape from Tarkov, or T I think that's how you call it. Um, you know, that could see, you know, just really easy DLSS 2.1 integration, giving NVIDIA cards the extra boost. I'm not sure about the ray tracing implementation because uh, the last time I looked at the Unity ray tracing implementation, it was focused a lot more on quality than real-time speed. Uh, so it was like targeting like 30 FPS kind of arch vids, uh, ar architectural visualization kind of uh, quality and less about gameplay quality, which is something UE4 has focused a lot more on. So I can't actually say to what degree it'll see implementation in games, but that's just another great thing mm -hmm. to see out there. Um, I guess then there's a whole swath of presentations. Uh, there's a couple that are happening right now as I'm talking to you uh, into this camera and, you know, like uh, Crytex uh, going over its RTX implementation uh, in Crisis Remastered. And there's a couple other ones that have still yet to occur, like Minecraft RTX, which I think is going to be really interesting. But there's been a couple that I've managed to watch that I think are going to actually have some down the road implementations and effects that we need to watch out for. Uh, the first of which is one uh, that they've showed off uh, now twice, and it's this Marbles demo using NVIDIA's Omniverse. And this presentation, there's a couple of them, one, like one focusing specifically on the rendering, and the other was the kind of creation aspect in this uh, NVIDIA Omniverse, which is a online collaboration tool. It can also be offline, like right next to like a, like a local server kind of thing uh, where developers can kind of iterate using a path traced environment and sw swapping in and out gameplay code and visuals all in real time with each other while kind of developing and iterating on something. Um, 
the, the really cool aspect of this from, from my perspective, outside of the development aspect, you know, collaborative, uh, really quick iterative development, real-time updates of lighting, was the fact that there was two aspects of it that genuinely surprised me. Uh, the first one was that um, it was not done using photogrammetry at all. Um, rather, they kind of uh, they had these incredibly realistic assets, and they were all done by normal kind of art workflows, except they're different from usual game workflows. It was using this um, open subdiv format in like Substance Designer and uh, the, the, the kind of other tools that they were using to model the 3D objects. And the really interesting thing about this is this open subdiv format, uh, it's used by like Pixar and ILM and all these other places, but it's creating perfect geometric models in real time by subdividing them on the GPU. And you know, in the past there's been tessellation, which, uh, which is not so great and it has all these constraints. And now we see um, Unreal Engine 5 uh, for static geometry moving in this other direction with Nanite. Um, so the interesting thing is this is a completely different standard, but it's also really, you know, there's a lot of workflows out there that already embrace it in the film industry, but we're seeing it running in real time on the GPU. And that, that I wonder if in the future, NVIDIA is going to somehow sponsor outside of Omniverse, some sort of open subdiv integration into other engines because it is very, very powerful and it produces incredible models uh, as the demo shows. And that, that's really interesting it's very tip from of my the perspective. Iceberg, I feel like, you know, this is it's bringing film production closer to what could be realistically used in a game. But I still think mm -hmm. we're probably years away from really seeing it become a big thing. But it seems like the, the beginning of something important. Yeah, I think it is. Um, another kind of years into the future, but really interesting thing uh, is this kind of RTX uh, DI, yeah, the direct RTX direct illumination job. Yeah, thank you. And this is uh, essentially replacing, like in game engines, the even a lot of ones with ray tracing, the primary direct illumination from like a, a normal light source, like the initial shot out light from it is still done through normal computer rasterization technology because that it does that really well. It has realism concerns and also has scales, like has concerns for scaling, like how many lights you put into a scene is still actually pretty limited, especially shadowed lights, oh, yeah. um, very limited. Uh, this RTX DI technology, through some very <clears throat> smart reuse of spatial information and temporal information and all these kind of things, uh, replaces that lighting function and does it through ray tracing. And it can have hundreds uh, of thousands of emissive lights in a screen, in a scene, and it's done through ray tracing, so all of them can be shadowed, and all of them have like the proper uh, like re specular response and all these things. But the, the the big thing is it's actually running in real time on the GPU, where it was usually really really expensive to do this in the past. Uh, this is very interesting for very specific game types that'll probably have as a result of it in the future. Uh, it's being put into it is currently in Unreal Engine four, and I do actually imagine this could be like a high ultra high setting that certain games could yeah. allow you to turn on that just give you really high fidelity lighting uh, just at the switch of a button, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, they should, uh, they should show that. Yeah. Uh, you might, there's the demo, the RTX Boulevard that they shared actually, which is a great demonstration of this technology in action, I think. And it really <laughs> showcases the benefits, especially that city scene is packed with all these emissive billboards, this big neon or uh, LED signs everywhere, and it really showcases the realistic lighting possibilities. 
uh, when you calculate those in this way. So it's, it's yeah. a lot of potential there. Yeah, it is. And I guess the last one that I spent some time watching too was uh, they had a uh, presentation covering Cyberpunk's ray tracing implementation. Oh, I and that. it was from two perspectives. Um, there was the perspective of the, I think, Bain Lighting Director uh, from uh, CD Projekt Red themselves discussing the challenges of lighting this cyberpunk world where it is built in such a way that traditional rendering technology is almost impossible to use in it because the city has too much geometry and too much space and all these other concerns that make light mapping impossible, right. so like static light mapping. Um, and then it also has these kind of buildings and overlapping structures and a lot of neon lights that make the normal way you like games with like point lights and directional lights or ambient occlusion and SSR, it just doesn't work uh, very well. It would leave a lot of areas looking flat. So they came up with their own uh, global illumination system, which you can see in the console versions. And John talked about it as well, like in his video originally, like just kind of being surprised how good the game even looks without ray tracing. Mm -hmm. um, and, but that still has a lot of cases uh, that just like fail really, really hardcore. Uh, so there's their ray tracing implementation focused on like eliminating all, a lot of these edge cases. Uh, so like the like some cool tidbits in that is that like the thinking about uh, Spider-Man's ray tracing implementation, Marvel Spider-Man. There's like I think away from the camera, the the ray traced uh, reflections go out like for like two kilometers or something like that. So just like really far to the distance. Yeah, they trace up until uh, they reach essentially the skybox or building. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, it's so basically like it, it, that makes a lot of sense in a city where if you were to look at a reflection, all of a sudden you'd see like massive buildings popping in and out of it. It'd be really awkward. Yeah. Um, and they also kind of focused for their ray traced reflections. Uh, making sure that it has no roughness cutoff, which I thought was really weird um, because usually that's for performance reasons. Yeah. They would not do that, but they made it so that like rough surfaces are actually done with mirror rays and all these cool things uh, just like fuddle, fuddle the width a bit so you don't see it. But the, the big impact of that was that there's a lot less glowing, uh, like, you know, where you could look at a wall and you would see like a light behind it glowing. You don't have that in the ray tracing view, which is very, pretty interesting. But the main takeaway from that is that the kind of normal problems that the, the kind of rasterized lighting would have uh, are completely cleared up with ray tracing in a way that's systemic. So it actually made lighting the game, at least the PC version, much easier for their, for their artists as described by their kind of um, tech art lead for lighting. And I thought that was just like a, a really good point. We always talk about the visuals uh, for ray tracing, but from this developer perspective, in the future, as uh, games are designed with it from the ground up, uh, which is something hopefully we can talk about soon, more of those type of games. It's just going to make developer lives easier. Yeah, uh, and that's, light, that's great. Lighting has been such a big problem for designing maps and making them look nice because getting getting a real-time preview of what you're looking at that's actually accurate to what the final version will be is difficult. Yeah. Uh, whether you're baking lighting in Unreal or, you know, so some even some older engines, you know, you just place a light object and you could set the color, but you had no idea what it would actually <laughs> look like until you rendered out the scene and, and actually ran through it. So being able to see all of this happen in real time in the editor, uh, I feel like this is going to set up the artists to allow them to be more ambitious with their light placement and just generally produce a more visually pleasing, realistic image and that feels less hacky because that's kind of what lighting has been in the past. <laughs> it's about finding all these different ways to light a scene through a combination of techniques. 
um but it's all ultimately to improve performance but doing this with ray tracing like this it's uh it's the future that's why we keep banging yeah. this drum <laughs> yeah i'm pretty excited and i you know the next couple of days i'll keep up with it maybe i'll post some stuff on twitter uh for any of the other really cool gtc presentations Please i come do. across yeah. okay well that kind of brings us to the end of this week's news section uh but let's crack on and talk about some of the stuff we've been doing this week okay so <laughs> First of all, John, you're currently working on a really interesting project, a bit off the beaten path, perhaps in some <laughs> respects, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing the results here. So tell us uh, something about it. But I guess by the time people watch this, they'll have actually seen it themselves. Yeah, so I'm doing a video on Shadow Man Remastered, but I decided to do one of the DF Retro EX episodes. So bringing in all the old versions, uh, PC, N64, PlayStation 1, and Dreamcast, comparing them against that. But what makes this one really interesting is this time, um, one of the engineers on the project uh, took the time out to share with me their tool set that they're using, which in this case is actually sort of a, a custom add-in that he created specifically for Blender, of all things. They use Blender as the map editor for this game which is weirdly uh accurate to how it was done in the past like apparently if i recall the original developers actually used 3d studio max uh to do all of the level work back in the day so this is kind of an extension of that um but you know for the video and i haven't done that part at the time of recording you know my ideas i kind of want to walk through and showcase just their process for actually editing these stages and kind of give a rundown of some of the features like how do you trigger events? How do you place music? You know, how do you um, do these cutscene cameras? How do you map out where the AI can go by setting up the node paths and all that? And, you know, how do you actually work with the models? How, how does, you know, how does all this stuff work? And it's all there. And it's, it's the kind of access that we so rarely get. You know, you can mess around with Unreal Engine and the like, but nobody's just going to send you their actual project, right? And don't expect that. So... Uh, I really, um, I really have to say thanks to Night Dive for actually trusting us with that to take a look at it, just so we can do something a little different with the video. Uh, and beyond that, the remaster itself is superb. It's really, really good. I mean, as is typical for these um, Kex Engine-based remasters, I mean the focus is still on maintaining that original visual design, but they add in a lot of new features. There is a optional high-res texture pack for instance they added fully dynamic lights everywhere and they're all shadow casting uh not every light but that's can be set in the editor something i'll also show uh, but there's a lot of dynamic lights that cast shadows all per pixel now uh, they added per object motion blur which is great uh, and just tons of other features that make it look really cool and you know at first glance you might think oh this feels pretty old and it does it's an older game of course but when you go back and play those original versions and then you play the remastered, it really helps you appreciate all the work that they've done. So uh, I don't know yet how the final video will have turned out. You will by the time you watch this <laughs> direct, but uh, hopefully it turns out pretty good. I've uh, just been enjoying John sending me screenshots from all the versions this week, like the PlayStation 1 version, and we're just talking about it. Oh, it's just like hilarious looking. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I, I, I had only seen this game ever on N64 before, uh, so John was, you know, I didn't even know there was a Dreamcast version, I didn't know there was a PC version, you know, this is, this is good, rife material for, for, for a Digital Foundry uh, kind of Definitely. retro video, it's perfect. Good stuff. 
Well, I've been working on a bunch of stuff, and um, obviously right. we still have the DF developers uh, piece that I'm doing, uh, which is going to be hopefully within the next couple of weeks. Uh, the problem is that, unlike John, I can't, you know, because I run the company, do all manner of other stuff in the background that you don't see. I don't really have the chance to just dig into a project and just sit down for a solid week to do it. So it's been a bit more of an extended yeah. haul. That's a big um, problem for these projects that involve a lot of interview material and like really create mm -hmm. crafting the narrative. You really have, for me at least, I have to get into the zone and concentrate. And if you have to do all this other work, uh, I can see how that would cause some issues so. yeah but this this project has been uh, on recompile which is a next gen only indie title really distinct visual style metroidvania style game i think it was like september last year where i actually went up to manchester that's right to talk to the developers about it but i just haven't had the time to to focus on that until recently but it's been really interesting to get back into that also behind the scenes we're doing a lot more um about our upcoming Patreon revamp, and um, it's just a really interesting opportunity to um, put together some content that probably wouldn't do very well on YouTube, but um, mm -hmm. finds an audience with people that really dig what we what we do, which is kind of liberating in a way because oh, yeah. um, you know the the doors are open to doing more interesting and varied stuff, and we don't really have to worry about you know hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand views on youtube or whatever the criteria is these days so um yeah that, that's that's all really interesting stuff that's happening in the background um i guess we should say that we are going to be doing outriders the crossplay does work on it now um huge amount of requests to do that title and um you know now we can actually bring all of the consoles together into one game instance we can stress test it with multiplayer active uh, that's yeah. something for Tom to do. Uh, he's been away this week because it was his birthday. <laughs> Ooh, happy great. birthday, Tom. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, something else which I think is really exciting. Tech Focus is returning. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, it's been a while. I actually can almost barely remember the last one I did. I, I guess it was RS. It was VRS, so that has to have almost been like a year wow, ago. Now. It's been that long. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, well, just so much next gen stuff going on. I like know. it's 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 leaked into other things. Like when I talked about Spider-Man's ray tracing like preview, I did kind of tech focus it a bit, uh, a little bit. Uh, so there, it's been leaking into other work, but this one's kind of going back uh, a while now, and I really like doing these videos and the topics that I'm looking to cover as it comes back. And this is you know stuff that is really. Uh, the reason why we can do it is because tech focuses, you know, it sometimes can do really, really well, like our anti-aliasing video, which, you know, if I had the chance, I would redo it. Um, it's just like one of my first videos, so it's a little you embarrassing could, for me to watch. Focus 2.0. Yeah, 2.0. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, no, no, no. It could be uh, anti-aliasing remastered. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's new techniques since then, and uh, mm -hmm. could cover TAA in a much more kind of like grounded way that's better, things like that. Um, but uh, topics that I want to cover uh, for it uh, is one I want to cover global illumination. I think it's gonna it's a it's a big topic with a lot of history. Uh, so I gotta you know compact it in a way that makes sense. It's gonna start off like theoretical and then immediately move into examples that everyone can recognize. Um, then I also kind of want to cover reflections, uh, mm. kind of working off the, you know, John's covered it technically a tiny bit uh, in his uh, 
DF Retro water video. There, oh, yeah. This, the render, I'll, I'll be treading similar ground stuff. at times. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be treading similar ground there at some aspects, but you know, there's just like talk about it in a more holistic way. Uh, so not just water. There's been a lot as well of new too. techniques uh, since then <laughs> for reflections. Yeah, that's, so. there, there definitely has. <laughs> so that, that's a, a few. Um, another one that I kind of look at is uh, I kind of want to go back and look at physicalized interactions in video games, uh, like just kind of general physics, you know, it could be going back to uh, dress pack, trespasser, Hitman all one. the way up to the modern stuff, you know, GPU acceleration for all those things. Hitman, yeah, well, like Hitman, um, you know, just kind of going back in time for that a as well. Card. You gotta get that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm trying to find one. They, they're pretty expensive, actually. I found out, yeah. I think I wanna tap into some other resources there than just looking on eBay. Uh, maybe through Patreon supporters or something like that. See who has what, if they could loan it. Uh, and the last kind of aspect that I definitely want to try on uh, moving on and making a video on it at some point in time is particle effects. I talked about it for just like a split second in the atmospheric rendering video when looking at Red Dead Redemption 2 and going back in time and how, to see how atmospheric rendering was done for so long. And for a while it was done through like just particle effects, but that's a whole other beast. Uh, so that would be fun to look at and just say like, okay, where did particle effects start and where are we now? Uh, and that's just like a fun over time, see how it developed thing. And that's the way it's looking right now. Uh, they take a while to develop. They require a lot of research and to make sure I'm not saying things that are wrong. And it takes a lot of time to think of like good original games that show off the effect well and a scene that shows it off well. Oh yeah. So these things are gonna be back burner for a while. Uh, as you know, other projects take you know precedence, uh, but it is coming back. It's going to be cool, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I think that kind of rounds up our uh, content discussion. So um, yeah, let's move on to our lovely Patreon supporter Q and A. All right. Okay, so here we are. Our supporters send us questions every week. We uh, take a good look through all of them, <laughs> cherry pick the best and uh, bring them to you for your, for your delectation. Mm. And uh, well, looking at who asked the first one and bearing in mind that you lived in France for a while, John, <laughs> yeah, John. I'm gonna ask you to take point on this question. Wait, what? I can see you peering at your monitor. <laughs> who asked? Uh, yeah. Can you say the name? Oh, je ne suis pas bavard. <laughs> It looks like <laughs> I, there's, no space, there's no spaces in it, so it was a second <laughs> to parse what, what I'm looking at. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, the question there he was basically how he's about. talking about um, how Mass Effect changed his perspective on the kind of stories games could convey. It was a revelation. Wow. I had to lean back and process what had just happened while the credits rolled, and he's wondering whether there's been any games that have had a similar effect for you uh, a revelation in terms of what games as a medium can provide i'm going to go to you on this alex first but i fear the answer may well be quite predictable no. <laughs> i'm not going to say that for this one because I've, I've played a lot of first person shooters before then let's just say that um but i think actually for me is i played the original dark souls on xbox 360 while working a job that was like a really terrible job and i had to like stay overnight at a place and doing something and there was nothing to do and there was an Xbox 360 there and I just loaded up the original uh, Dark Souls and I was blown away uh, by the kind of methodical 
always online design and just the kind of surprising it was it felt old at the same time as feeling completely new and i, I it had been a long time after this you know i i've been playing just like scripted single player games for a long time extremely linear paths uh, a lot of cinematic content or online multiplayer games that felt more systemic uh, and this was like a whole new beast of a game. And it really opened my mind up for what's possible uh, uh, in video games since then. And I, I'm really happy to see every single time developers take cues from the original Dark Souls or Demon Souls, uh, because I think it's just such a strong game design. Yeah. Wow. And uh, John, yeah. any thoughts on this one? I could think of a couple. There's actually a lot that I could think of. Yeah. Some, some that really stick out to me is, uh, I think I remember the first time playing through System Shock 2 and just that that experience of like it created such a sense of dread but in a good way like it was a terrifying game at the time and just this combination of all these systems together with this like of uh, the way the story was told and the 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 fear factor behind it it was so incredibly immersive and then I played it in co-op and it just felt like I don't know it was one of the most uh inspiring moments in games and i feel like we never really saw something that that did co-op quite like that again even though it was mm -hmm. just like a patch that added it in the after effect but you know leveling up your characters in very different ways and like i'd have like uh somebody go to like the research area you know with their psyop stuff and like they'd set up barriers around them so they could do do certain tasks in there while i was outside taking care of the enemies and such and just kind of wow. working together because you know you'd be weak against one thing and your partner may not be weak against the other and it was it was really cool and along those same lines the other thing that always comes to mind and i swear this it still sounds cool today uh it's the splinter cell um pandora's oh. Mara multiplayer and i'm not yeah. even a big multiplayer guy but that that spies versus mercs thing the first time i experienced that there was so many brilliant ideas in there from making the mercs first person and the spies third person uh yeah. two players could go where the other players could not and vice versa you know talking in the microphone making it like a uh, distance based so you could like whisper in people's ears like the thing is though is a lot of the stuff in that game requires you to almost role play in a way that this is the thing that's kind of ruined modern multiplayer games for me is like everybody is just there to just like no matter what it's just about winning no matter what and it's yeah there, there, it takes a certain a bit of fun out of it in a way there was something about that specific era playing that game in multiplayer that way that i've never really experienced again i've uh, i've got a similar story there regarding a multiplayer game the original natural selection for me was really um it opened my mind to what because uh, it had uh, it's essentially if people who don't know what the original natural selection is, it's a mod for Gold Source Half Life, uh, where you take on one side <clears throat> multiplayer uh, kind of space marines, very much so, you know, your typical archetype space marines versus aliens, uh, and you would think this is just like a very simple FPS game, but it's actually the one side has a commander that builds structures in this really cramped 3D environment that's essentially like the Nostromo or something like that, like these derelict spaceships usually. And you have to like control resources and things like that. While the alien side has no commander at all, rather it works on like a distributed hierarchy where uh, there's like a building class and you have to kind of 
The only way the game works is if you communicate as a team and also essentially role play because everything is so deadly that you have to actually be much so like in the Aliens movies, moving around the environment, uh, afraid of every single corner you walk around. That's cool. uh, it is extremely intense and uh, the game design is just wonderful. And it just reminds me so much of what you're saying there, John, where it's like a, a mashup of genre, like you have the, like the first and third person in the Splinter Cell game, as well as like non-lethal, lethal. And in this game, you have real-time strategy mixing in with horror, mixing in with online competitive multiplayer. It's it's so well done, and that's another huge inspiration game for me, for sure. I, bet, I could imagine for Richard, it would be something like seeing the Mega Drive for the first time. <laughs> well, I'm I'm actually going to go back even further Whoa. Um, to uh, the '80s text adventures that were run um, over modem. There was a Mud Multi-User Dungeon, which was oh, yeah. basically a text adventure where you could interact with other people. And um, this is basically the precursor to multiplayer gaming um, online as it is today. And uh, this was just totally mind-blowing to me. I couldn't actually play it because, um, well, <laughs> uh, first of all, I uh, didn't have a powerful enough computer. Secondly, <laughs> I didn't have a modem. Thirdly, the cost of a phone call in the 80s was just insane. So, um, but, you know, I saw it running on TV and that was amazing. And what I actually did um, for my uh, GCSE computer studies project, the main sort of project that you were ranked on, I actually wrote a multi-user text adventure that ran on a BBC Micro Model B. Wow. On our internal school network, uh, which was kind of mind-blowing that it actually could work it's kind of compromised compared to an actual modem experience, but it did actually did actually work. And then there were text adventures in the early 90s um, that you could actually play again over um, the modem. And um, these were a lot more uh, available to more people. And I think that kind of just opened the door to me there that while the game itself was really static and not much actually happened in it, the dynamic nature of it came from the player interactions. So you never mm -hmm. knew if you were safe from another player. Players <laughs> Ooh, got yeah. together into guilds and were attacking <clears throat> other guilds. All of this stuff just happening, playing out in, in text. But you're quite right, John, in terms of uh, major revelations. Um, yeah, yeah, I've talked about it in the past. <laughs> the first time I saw the Mega Drive just completely turned me off home computers <laughs> at the time. I had an Amiga at the time and just uh, uh, it didn't last too long after that. Um, I think going back to uh, the original questioner's point about story, um, mm. The title that springs to mind for me would be Uncharted 2 because this was um, a really good story and amazing characterization. And I think um, that was that was a, a sort of game changer, a template for others to, to follow. I think what really sort of sold that to me was the fact that the story continued to play out in gameplay. There was kind of like a almost dynamic um, dialogue that played out according to what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And um, that really was, you know, hugely exciting to, to sort of see something that genuinely felt, um, I don't know, you know, at the time I kind of felt that Naughty Dog were almost like the Spielberg of storytelling in video <laughs> games, you know, it was just really impressive stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of everything I've got to say about that question. So let's move on to the yeah. next one, which is from uh, Anton Kirilenko. 
Um, good one for you, Alex. Here now that the new mm -hmm. now that the new generation of consoles exist with ray tracing support, when do you expect the developers will drop support for PC GPUs that aren't capable of ray tracing, like uh, GTX 10 series, RX uh, 5700 and below? I hear it's already happening with the next gen <laughs> upgrade for Metro Exodus. Well, uh, they already announced it. So yeah, I mean, Metro Exodus's enhanced edition will only run on RT-capable GPUs. Uh, the one thing to, re to remark here that is NVIDIA GTX 1000 series actually does support ray tracing. Uh, yes. Don't forget that. So you can technically yeah. run down to it. Well, I'm just, you know, like if it's just like <laughs> running the game, you can run it at 720p and see what happens. Um, but so let, that's one thing to, to remind. I actually think in terms of when this will happen, it's going to take at least two to three years for a much... I mean, this is a AAA title. Metro Exodus Enhanced is totally a AAA title. But more than just this title, and more than something like Minecraft RTX, where there's already a version out there that you can play, but this is the RT version of it, I think it's going to take like two to three years because um, other than the PC space, there's... And you know the middleware engines. It's going to take a while for developers to develop a game with RT in mind as the base spec. Um, I think it's going to still take a little bit because even like uh, if you look at uh, Miles Morales, there's a they they have they made the game. You you can turn it off still there. Um, so well, there's a PS4 you know, version. Yeah, there's also a PS4 version essentially there too. Good point. I almost forgot about that. Um, and even, you know, it's, and I just think like two or three years. Then we'll see the first one. And by that time, a GTX 10 series card is, what, those came out in like 2016, I swear, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 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 So they're incredibly old by that point in time. There should be no expectation by that point that uh, a new, you know, game should run on them. Uh, in terms of the 5000 series, I always feel like it's just like a not great purchase uh, mm -hmm. from like the, forward-looking aspect and that would be uh if i were one of those people who had one of those cards i would probably be upset at, by that point in time but when games are coming out that don't have art you know a non-rt mode or a non-direct x12u mode uh, which the 5000 series also doesn't support so um but i also think by that point in time it's just like buyer beware uh so it goes you know you just gotta live with it mm. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, Radeon 5700 and uh, the way it was positioned at the time, you know, it was kind of weird because I was at an AMD presentation in Los Angeles that was concurrent with E3. And uh, John was covering E3. I was there for the AMD stuff. And, you know, basically, AMD came up with a slide, which was their ray tracing strategy, which was basically, hey, you don't need ray tracing. You know, it's, it's perfectly oh, yeah. fine. A few years down the road... You know, that's when things will be happening. And then literally the day later, <laughs> um, you know, they were talking about hardware accelerated ray tracing in the next wave of consoles, which were produced by AMD. <laughs> and this was just like a massive disconnect. It's quite interesting going back to that slide because um, they're talking about how um, ray tracing will really find its feet in the cloud, which I think is yeah, a, what? A, an interesting take. And it's kind of already been uh, debunked, I think, um, for, for gaming, certainly. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Metro Exodus is the, um, is the title that's going to lead the way. But at the same time, 
the old version is still there, which will run just fine on. Well, on isn't this the case? Cards. Isn't the new one also coming to Steam? Yes, it is. Which yeah. uh, did it, did Metro Exodus ever release on Steam? Yeah, yeah, far? it did. Okay, it did. yeah, it did it a year later essentially. Mm-hmm. Is it? Wait, it's only been it's been that. Oh man, twenty twenty. <laughs> oh, it's been yeah. It it's, feels it's like been a while. Wow. Time, believe me, it only feels like it's been a yeah. year, but it's actually been like two. <laughs> Yeah, we've kind of, yeah. Recent, you know, recent events have kind of <laughs> propelled us into a holding pattern. Time has frozen. It really feels Pocket that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got a question here from Peter Foggett, which kind of um, uh, extends from that one, uh, which is, in your opinion, is path slash raid facing still a chicken and egg position? Uh, sure, we've seen apps make use of raid facing, but the developers still need to do a rasterized version of the same app. Um, what would be, in your opinion, the necessary things to happen for the whole industry to shift to path slash raid facing? And would it even be a desired path? Uh, please know that I am blown away by the potential of raid facing, and I'm not asking out of <laughs> dislike for the oh, tech. Yeah. You don't need to do any caveats here. We're all no, in the future yeah. of technology. <laughs> uh, this is a... This is an interesting one. Right now, it is actually in this really hard in-between area where um, you are essentially developing two versions of a scene, and you need to always double check uh, what's going on. And that is more time, technically, for developers. So it is actually pretty hard, and it does allow you to see oversights at times. And I've pointed them out in videos, like when you go to uh, Modern Warfare 2019 and you switch on the ray tray shadows. Yeah, they look really awesome, but there's other aspects of the rendering that were designed around rasterization and not around ray tracing. And all of a sudden, it looks there's like a disconnect at times. Uh, like vegetation can sometimes be static in shadows and things like that. So it is actually in a very hard spot right now. I think. Uh, Pulling back into the other question, uh, the thing that is going to make it is just time, two to three years development time, uh, new engines, new games designed around it, and also uh, allowing the old hardware that doesn't support it, uh, everything pre-last-gen consoles and RTX 2000 series, uh, or I guess, whatever. Um, that, that basically just needs to get old and not and less popular in like the Steam yeah. surveys. That, yeah. That's the key is time, enough time has to pass. We're basically in that era. It's like in the early 2000s with pixel shading. Uh, that was a very new thing. And for like, I don't know, five, six, seven years, developers were still creating like their fixed function uh, mm-hmm. design. And then they also had like pixel shader support. And that was both between the consoles because only the Xbox really supported that. Uh, and also in the PC space, since most graphics cards for a while, I mean, the GeForce yeah, 3 was the first it. one to really do it. And it was kind of slow at first. Uh, it took time. And I think that's really just what it is. It's just time. We have to wait for developers to get comfortable with it. Enough hardware has to be out there to support it so that you can leave behind the old stuff. Um, and then eventually we'll get there. But yeah, it's going to be some years, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, consoles <laughs> define the baseline, right? And yeah. um, we've got to get sort of mass penetration of the new wave of machines uh, before we start seeing these dedicated engines. But, you know, going back to Metro Exodus, what they've said is, you know, basically our new engine is going to be fully uh, developed around ray tracing. That's pretty good. It's an unambiguous, (laughs) really unambiguous (laughs) statement. And I'm kind of suspecting that Metro Exodus is going to be the revamped version is going to be just kind of like a preview of, of, of what we're going to uh, see there. And I'm really interested to see two things there. Uh, first of all, um, how it's going to run on consoles. 
And secondly, mm -hmm. the kind of performance uplift versus, versus the original uh, version on PC, which did have uh, a kind of, uh, I'd say it's more of a bolted on ray tracing mm -hmm. implementation. So to actually see how those two versions compare and also the visual fidelity improvements, I'm just really interested to see what 4A have got going there. And um, yeah, these guys are at the forefront, but rest assured, there's going to be a lot more developers doing oh, a yeah. lot more with ray tracing uh, going forward. And um, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, if we go back to our discussions in 2018, when RTX first appeared, none of us thought that hardware accelerated ray tracing would be in the next wave of consoles. Mm -hmm. But there it is just goes to show how forward looking the industry is. And yeah, I'm hugely excited by it. So have you got anything to, to round off that discussion, Alex? Yeah, yeah, there's there's the one aspect of this question here that we all didn't touch on and would it be the desired path is what uh, Peter also asks. Um, there's almost essentially no other way to improve lighting fidelity without getting like indirect lighting queries through some sort of tracing. There's just like literally no other way. Rasterization, the way it's done there is plateaued severely after a certain like level of fidelity or a certain size or a certain uh, just like, you, you can almost not get an understanding of the game world without some form of tracing. And there's a bunch of different types, uh, not tracing rays against triangles is not the only one, but GPUs are already, you know, producing and making triangles. So the way it's currently being done does seem like the smartest way to do it based upon uh, the kind of legacy hardware we have. Maybe in the future though, uh, I do think the desired paths will be, become more programmable. And this is for all things like NVIDIA or AMD where the only thing you're feeding it is not necessarily going to be triangles, but maybe you could feed it voxels, maybe you can feed it SDFs, maybe it is not going to be doing uh, a ray trace, but maybe a cone trace as an option. Uh, but that's just like stuff in the future. This is like the initial starting point where we already have these this hardware that's making triangles and we need to find a way to trace against these triangles. And this is why it's, yeah, it's the desired path. I yeah. think we are, the, another reason it's the des desired paths you already touched on is it's easier for developers and lighting artists to work with. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's super key, I think, is, you know, I, I'd imagine they want to get this up and going as the standard because it's just going to make creating these scenes faster and easier uh, mm -hmm. and a way to be more productive and produce better results. So there's definitely a lot of benefits here. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's move on. Really interesting question here from Docs. I'm not sure we're fully equipped to actually go too deep on this one, but it's definitely an interesting topic. Uh, there's a discussion on the DF Discord at the moment talking about accessibilities in, accessibility in games mm -hmm. and how that should look. Uh, Doc's question is, uh, what is your view on accessibility features within games and how should they be? Should games be designed around accessibility features? Should players have the option to change dynamic, sorry, to dynamically change difficulty, etc.? In the end, it's an interesting subject with many different facets to it. And I'm interested in seeing what you guys think. I think, um, well, from, from what I'm seeing, there's some really great stuff happening. I mean, um, just to access the slow motion mode in uh, The Last of Us Part Two, you have to access the accessibility menus. And there's a there's a, a vast wealth of stuff going on in there where it's mm -hmm. clear that a lot of thought has put in has been put into making these games uh, much more easy to handle, 
much more accessible, much more tweakable as well. And I think some of these accessibility options um, are going to be quite useful for for you know a wide range of players. So I suspect it's just uh, um, something that will gradually become the norm, and mm-hmm. will just introduce a extra level of, of tweakability to the experience. I also think. Um... I completely agree, and I think there's a lot of great work being done there. The only the only area where it gets dicey for me, I think, is uh, when it comes to actual difficulty, mm-hmm. uh, because I find personally that I, a lot of games are are only rewarding because of that learning you have to do from that, and um, it's a trick. It's a tricky thing, but I kind of I've kind of come to the conclusion, and maybe I'm off about this, that not every game is for everybody. There's a lot of games yeah. made today that I hate, or I can't play at all. I can't get into, and that's okay. That's totally okay uh, that yeah. those exist, and because nobody can play every game. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, when it comes to like. It, it depends on what the difficulty is about. Like for a cinematic game, for instance, like a Naughty Dog thing, like it's totally fine, I think, for them to include the option to basically make it very easy to get through so you can just enjoy that experience. But for something that's more like where the core game design is driven by a certain level of challenge that's kind of consistent across, I'm not sure that that needs to change per se. Yeah. I'd, I'll um, I'll agree with both Rich and John that I find these uh, increased accessibility options uh, really great, and I hope that it um, it is also not done on a bolt-on kind of way where it's actually done at the outset of development as a certain amount of budget and team and the right uh, kind of people are being asked the yeah, right exactly. questions about what we need to make uh, to allow this game to be accessible to uh, you know people with certain needs and mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. That's really great, but there's the the other aspect of games is that it is so diverse that there are niche games that come out all the time, like Steam. Just go to Steam and just like look at the weird releases you see there. There's, those are games that are uh, not accessible actually because they already require niche interests to be into in the first place. Um, and in such a in such an aspect, there is going to always be a hurdle, and it should not be expected that every game be accessible because there are already niche desires and interests that won't interest people. And you know, that's just like yeah, the, the exactly. nature of it. So, so a game designed fully around some really arcane and ununderstandable uh, kind of difficulty curve, uh, well, maybe it only has a thousand people that play it anyway. Uh, so it is hard to say that that game needs to be accessible in the same way a Naughty Dog title yeah, does. Yeah, I'm thinking about stuff uh, like EVE Online, for instance. Yeah, Which is that, popular, that, but it's kind of impenetrable for most people. And I think that's totally it, fine. <laughs> it, that's that's completely fine. And I don't think people would argue in the same aspect. I don't think uh, people would say an art house film needs to be accessible. Yeah. Maybe it needs a certain level of accessibility just so that it's at least watchable and palatable yeah, in exactly. terms of like uh, uh, subtitles and uh, I don't know, a certain level of sound or something like that. But people wouldn't say change the film's content to um, make it more accessible. I think it's usually developers always have to look at the place in the marketplace. Uh, like, what does this game mean for the market? If it's this big marquee title that's designed to appeal to everyone, then I think it becomes a lot more important. So it does kind of vary per title and what the developer goals are there. And it, but you're right. There should be like a minimum level of features that uh, implemented to it, at least to the nuts and bolts stuff. 
uh, yeah, to help yeah. uh, cater to other needs as well. So that's good. I think the I'd bottom agree. line, though, is that you know this is about making games accessible to people you know who are less fortunate than than us. And I'm just For looking sure. here mm -hmm. at the um, the Last of Us 2's accessibility options. It's incredible. <laughs> I know um, there yeah, was a, a feature on Eurogamer that um, uh, that kind of uh, gave a, a pat on the back to Naughty Dog for just putting so much thought into this. But uh, I just Googled the range of options that they've got here. They've got vision accessibility presets. There's uh, at least 10 of those, more than that. Um, hearing accessibility presets, you know, awareness indicators, pickup notifications, uh, various subtitle options, combat vibration cues, guitar vibration cues, guitar, <laughs> guitar vibration cues. You know, the visual accessibility stuff, text-to-speech, uh, you can change the scale of the HUD, uh, traversal and combat audio cues, uh, navigation and traversal assistance. Uh, you know, it's just uh, Yeah, really all that stuff, stuff is brilliant and can be implemented, I think, without... Uh, interfering with anything else as well it just makes it yeah. more accessible to others and i think that's that stuff is really good that's really yeah good. definitely but you know in terms of being able to to comment about it uh more specifically it's it, you know we really don't have the expertise to no, no. I, that's no. really important to understand yeah that's just us kind of spitballing ideas i think because we're yeah. not we're not experts in this field by any means no, that's that's why they hire experts. Exactly, I hope. <laughs> exactly. But you know, we've got developers leading the way here to make you know the games more accessible to more people, and I just think that's fundamentally a really good thing. Yep. Um, okay, next question from Philip. Uh, really interesting question here. Even in the worst of times, the PlayStation Three Three Sixty era. <laughs> so <laughs> that is the worst of <laughs> times, so apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sony had been able to stay competitive, mostly thanks to their strength in the Japanese market. Recent business decisions make it seem like we're going to see somewhat of a remake of that generation. This is—I'm not sure I agree with this. No, with a vulnerable no. Sony versus an aggressive Microsoft, but it's hard to overstate how. Irrelevant that Xbox brand is in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> He's going for it here. Do you, guys, do you guys think this can change? Can the console war be won without Japan? Um, I, I just want to say quickly, uh, the PS360 era, Sony was disadvantaged, but um, it, and Japan was more important than it is today. But uh, Xbox had very little penetration in Europe outside of the UK. Um, and PlayStation definitely was a hugely dominant brand there. So it's, yeah, I, I, do, I do kind of appreciate some of the sentiment of this question in terms of the importance of Japan. And maybe that's kind of what we should be focusing on. But yeah, PS3 was just a, a juggernaut in Europe compared to the 360. Whereas in uh, it, things were a lot more interesting in the UK and the US. But anyway, what do you reckon on this, John? Um, I mean, I do think it can be won without Japan, of course, uh, but I think a lot of people, and especially in the West still, they love Japanese developed games. And I feel like it's important to have some support from Japanese companies, which so far we, you know, you see that. Um, but I do get the feeling that there is this sudden focus very heavily on western markets above all else and unfortunately there that also seems to include potentially some like just in terms of actual development like targeting west with japanese developed games as well 
I mean, I don't know how much we can get into here, but it's, it is one of those things where I'm a little bit curious about where it's going to go because both Microsoft and Sony don't really seem to be looking too hard at Japanese developers right now versus um, Nintendo. Nintendo seems to be uh, doing very well with that and they, they are dominating over, over in Japan. I kind of wonder if the PS5 and the Xbox series consoles are both going to end up kind of flopping over there and it's going to end up becoming a Nintendo dominated region. Mm. Well, the, the signs haven't been looking too great for PlayStation 5 in Japan, but it is early days. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, but you're right. It is but, interesting that Sony's corporate focus seems to have shifted away from Japan. Uh, I'm sure um, the, the PlayStation 5 will do better than the Xbox in Japan. I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, Xbox yeah. has zero attraction uh, there these days. It's really, it does, it's, yeah. Which but, is interesting because I almost feel like the Series S could be popular in Japan, mm. right? In terms of just like it's slow, small, low power, uh, you know, just it's- That presumes like that people like... are only looking at the hardware and not the games. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. I'd agree that's then, the yeah. issue. Yeah, I don't really know how much more we can add to this because um, uh, I don't know, you know, the, the I mean, back in the day, every game, you know, every major title, uh, you know, going back to like Mega Drive and that kind of era, Japan was like of primary importance. Obviously, that has changed over the years. Um, but we are still seeing some great Japanese games. I think that's yep, the, the good for news. Sure. Um, Thankfully, yeah. yeah. Not, not too much I can really add to that uh, mm -hmm. on this one. Should we move on to another question, uh, which yeah. is a really yeah. good one? And um, it's from T Dog. <laughs> T Dog. <laughs> And uh, I think you'd be in prime position to answer this one, Alex. How do you sure. view frame time FPS graph software, such as Tuner for PC games? Are they accurate compared to the professional setup that you use to capture this data from HDMI feeds? Any other recommendations for software for measuring PC game performance? Uh, okay, so I find RTSS invaluable. And I find it really, really good. I think everyone should take advantage of it if you're trying to understand why your PC doesn't seem like it's giving you the performance you want. And you should set it up so that you have GPU usage, uh, clearly visible, GPU um, uh, frequency, uh, clearly visible, so you can know that your card's clocking up correctly. And you also want to have uh, each individual thread that you have for your many-cored PC showing off uh, essentially the amount of um, thread utilization you're seeing because it is accurate in a lot of titles and it is really helpful to understand whether you're GPU limited. So if you're below uh, your GPU's full 99% utilization or 100% utilization, or whether or not uh, something else is eating the way like GPU RAM, there's like now the new per process ability to say, how much GPU RAM is this process using? And RTSS will show you that if you click it on in the monitor. And if you get stuttering in a game or if it's running slower than you want, you can always look at that number. And if it's, if it's above or right on the cusp of how much VRAM your card has, you get a great understanding of what's wrong. And then you can tweak your settings based upon that. So it is really good. Um, the second part of this question, is it accurate? Uh, it is less accurate than what we get through uh, FCAT or from doing uh, kind of like raw HDMI capture and then running it through our tools to see what's going on because uh, it is capturing essentially the 
frame rate that DirectX understands is happening mm -hmm. through present monitor. And that is not always actually what is being sent out to your screen completely. And I've seen it in the past in uh, the OpenGL version of No Man's Sky, where uh, RTSS is saying, I've got this frame rate, but the real frame rate is like not at all that. And I also had it recently with, um, gosh, the evil within, uh, when it would oh, be yeah. kind of messed up uh, and it would uh, have really low frame rate that I talked about recently in that Game Pass video. Uh, so it can technically be less accurate. And also, I do want to kind of hype the fact that um, running, uh, you see a lot of benchmarks out there that run games without uh, vSync on and they're, they're reporting like the raw RTSS statistics. I don't know, like non vsync benching, uh, just hitting CPU limits. Uh, a lot of, you know, games can look a lot worse than they really do when you're just like trying to tag the game to 60 or something like that. So be very, a little bit weary about like the frame time reporting you're seeing in benchmarks sometimes, because, you know, if you're just targeting 60 FPS flat with vsync or, you know, uh, most people are GPU limited before they get CPU limited. So that's just one thing to say. I, other tools that I would recommend, uh, CapFrame X is essentially, a, a, that Rich has used a lot more than I did have, uh, is like an extension of RTSS. Uh, maybe you could talk about that. Um, it's just basically uh, a benchmarking suite built around, I guess it is still present one that they're using there. Um, but it is doing some really interesting stuff, lots of really interesting monitoring and um, it just kind of takes things to the next level. And, you know, when the, uh, the, the German benchmarking behemoths are starting to use CapFrameX, I think you have to start taking notice of it a bit more. Um, but fundamentally, um, to sort of pick up on what you're saying, Alex, Flight Simulator, I guess, was the big one, where um, the fact that it was limited to uh, a form of V-Sync basically would put you at odds with what internal metrics would be uh, would be presenting and I think that's basically the issue what do you want uh, what do you want measured do you want measured what's happening inside the PC or do you want what's measured when that actually emerges from the graphics card I think it's always got to be the latter yep. and um, the ways and means of measuring that <laughs> I mean we've spent literally years developing our tools to make it easy uh, or easier to handle. But, you know, we, we, when we're seeing things like a disconnect between uh, a Revatuner statistics server frame rate measurement and what our eyes are telling us by looking at the screen, then, you know, to what extent is your benchmark actually relevant? Um, that's that's a, a big question I think people need to be, be looking at. And... Um, for the most part, it is basically going to be uh, reliant on the game experience. And um, yeah, this is a really interesting topic. When you're talking also about um, the whole V-Sync off situation. Um, yeah, I guess that kind of works on an adaptive sync screen. You probably would be mm -hmm. doing that. But again, you would be topping out at the, at the refresh rate of the screen. It's really difficult. I guess you can generate your, your benchmark graphs and uh, you can produce ni nice A to B comparisons. But I actually think that putting a frame rate limit on things can definitely help produce a more consistent experience. The classic case in point I had back in the day was um, Crisis 3 on a really low end overclockable Pentium. 
750 Ti, if you mm -hmm. ran that unlocked, um, the CPU would just become overwhelmed. It just didn't have enough threads. But if you put a 30 frames per second cap on it, it ran mostly fine. And it was, you know, a really good experience from a CPU you could buy for 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Jeez. it's really interesting, the kind of difference between benchmarking and the experience. Now, benchmarks yes. are great for relative performance, but I'm kind of more interested in the experience and maybe you yep. can extrapolate out based on yeah. your components from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's one, that's one thing that we sometimes, sometimes I do to see comments under the videos, like, why am I focusing on just like frame drops instead of like unlocking VSync or something? Because it's like, I'm actually interested in getting a really uh, consistent experience and uh, I, that, I'll do, yeah. That's John something we've fought here. with a lot. The audience yeah. is often questioning this, but really, I think our we're looking at this from a different perspective from your typical benchmark site might, where it really is about the perceived uh, fluidity of the of the game experience, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we're most interested in achieving. The benchmark stuff is interesting, but it doesn't like the way you benchmark a game is not the way it's. It won't feel great to play it that way usually. Yeah, and I don't think it's ultimately important for the end user experience. It's really just for understanding like hardware differences and being able to like stack up a bunch of cards next to one another. Uh, but in terms of the actual experience, it's that consistency of frame time that's really mm. critical. Yeah, definitely. Now let's move on to the next question from Liam Mosley. Uh, really enjoying the DF2X. Keep them coming and keep up the good work. We saw techniques like dynamic resolution scaling, temporal anti-aliasing, and temporal upsampling used extensively as we approached the end of last gen. As we move into current gen, what newer graphical slash performance techniques, performance saving techniques, do you wish to see adopted by developers? John. Uh, machine learning being used <laughs> yeah. for... Uh lots of things and i think there's a lot of potential for this beyond just improving the image quality yeah uh so right. i think that's a, that's a space to watch and i think we're going to see some pretty cool things in the coming years perhaps maybe not for a little bit but i think we'll get there yeah. okay alex uh john stole my thunder but oh, i'm, I'm gonna say <laughs> oh no how dare you um i'm gonna say uh variable rate shading in the aspect of one that is tuned to be completely invisible to human vision. And you know, there's metrics actually for that. So developers just have it always on, baked in on the engine level where it's not a user definable thing because they already do that for so much of the rendering. You know, yeah. particles are quarter res, this buffer is half res, this buffer is checkerboarded. They already do this kind of stuff, but VRS is just like a better way to do it and not have it be just a flat value always. And I hope that's uh, taken advantage of uh, as much as possible, baked in, not usable, configurable. And uh, yeah, that's what I kind of hope for. Yeah, I think it is going to be machine learning. But on top of that, it's going to be about um, interesting ways of repurposing hardware. Um, obviously, there's more hardware mm. for the developers to use in the next wave of consoles. And if you look at what's been done with uh, MSAA, you know, crazy stuff that's <laughs> that's been, you know, MSAA oh, yeah. isn't actually used in games that much anymore, if it, you know, at all. But, you know, uh, Modern Warfare 2019 is using it to produce its own software-based variable rate shading solution. And, uh, you know, 
who knows what's going to happen when developers get to grips with the raid facing technology um, and the, yeah. the kind of um, uh, geometry shading, sorry, the geometry engines that the new machines have. Crazy stuff. I mean, I can't really dare to speculate beyond the machine learning side of things, which I think is really interesting because it's kind of rather limited on the consoles. And obviously on the PC side of things, there's going to be much more going on there. NVIDIA obviously at the forefront, but, you know, AMD are going to do the same thing. I think it's pretty much inevitable at this point because simply because of the data center applications. You know, um, NVIDIA have made a really interesting play for taking uh, functions that are hugely essential in the data center and actually making them relevant to gaming. And uh, to compete in that space, AMD are going to have to do the same thing. So we're going to potentially see this interesting divide between machine learning on the consoles and in the PC space where there's far more options. And mm. um, we're already seeing it with DLSS and, you know, NVIDIA's software engineers. I can't, I've said this before, I can't imagine that they're sitting still just iterating on DLSS. They've got a lot more cooking. And uh, and that's kind of everything I've got to say about that. Right. Um, let's move on to the final question, well, which uh, which is quite interesting because it appears to have come out of nowhere. And, <laughs> and being the final question, I detect the dread hand of Audi Surly. Apparently, Alfred or or Ortiz. If that is a real person at all. If that is you know, a real person. Uh, when do you think we will see a fully path-traced Crazy Fog game with the annoying, <laughs> with the annoying <laughs> thing properly realized on PC? Well, you know, Alex, you're the, the ray-tracing expert. I mean, you know, people are path-tracing or ray-tracing San Andreas and uh, other games. Exactly. You know, we just need to mod that original Crazy Frog from... What, what year did that come out? 2000-something? Mid-2000s. Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of been lost in the mists of time, and rightfully <laughs> so. I'm still, you know, I, whenever I hear the letterbox go, I react in dread, <laughs> wondering whether Audi's got some new brown package for my perusal. But, you know, I've been doing all right so far. Nothing has appeared since the crazy fog debacle. It'll happen again <laughs> soon, I'm sure. Give it time. Give it time. <laughs> but I think that's everything we've got for this week. Uh, so thanks for joining me on this one, John. Sure thing. And uh, Alex, invaluable contributions as always. Thank you so much, Rich. <laughs> okay. Well, that is the end of this week. Uh, this week's DF Direct Weekly. So if you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, and if you're so inclined, share. Uh, ring the bell for instant notifications whenever new Digital Foundry content arrives on the channel. And if you want to get involved, join our Patreon, join our Discord. Big things are happening there. You won't be disappointed. But that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. <laughs>